from Sky News on the right to the ABC on the left. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. On the right of that line lies an evil empire of conservative Christians who deny climate change but believe in trickle-down economics. On the left lies a misguided and confused rabble who are supposed to help the working man but instead fight amongst themselves over identities. Only the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast takes the uncomfortable position of sitting astride the Iron Curtain <laughs> to take aim at both sides. <laughs> Only this podcast, and perhaps the bullshit filter, can explain the dire threats facing our civilization. I only wish that they could have traveled back in time to when I was conducting the war effort with the benefit of their wise counsel. The war would have ended three years earlier. I would not have lost the election and I would have invested heavily in technology stocks. (laughs) (laughs) In any event, I implore you to listen to this very fine podcast. It is your duty. Indeed it is, dear listener. It's your duty to join us on this fine podcast. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Cups raised to the podcast. (laughs) Indeed. To Winston. To Winston. (laughs) It's episode 215 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. This is a weekly podcast. We talk about news, uh, politics, current affairs, sex, religion, things going on. Our civilization. what's happening to it? Is it progressing? Is it regressing? Is it heading off in directions that we, most of us sort of aren't detecting and we're trying to detect. Anyway, what's going on? We're going to explore a range of topics as we normally do. I, of course, am Trevor the Iron Fist with me as, well, nearly always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. I've only had a couple of absences. (laughs) I mean, they have been a fair bit of late, but, you know, anyway. I like to be accurate. Oh, no, that's fine. So, you know, that's fine. Precision is good. I'm here tonight. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, G'day, listeners. And, of course, Paul the 12th man. G'day, listeners. G'day, Scott and Trevor. It's great to be back. It is good. Yes, we've got the full crew. (laughs) So, um, right. Well, what's been going on in the world? Um, Oh, I should mention that uh, we're, being, we're live streaming and the signal looks good and we've already got Tony and Caitlin on board. So that's great. There's people watching. And my only concern, guys, is that we don't get swatted. Have you heard of the expression swatted. to be swatted? No. Like right. a fly? Well, as in like a SWAT team. Ooh. Mm. You know those special operations police units? Apparently there's a thing where if you're broadcasting <sighs> – sort of in the gaming world, live streaming, uh-huh. and if people can find out your address, they ring up the police or the triple O emergency line and make a fake complaint oh. that there's an emergency situation okay. and then they sit back and watch the live stream as the SWAT oh. team enters your house and throws you on the ground and cuffs you until they determine whether you're uh, something going on or not. So it's called, <laughs> so it's called SWATting. I think I have so, heard of it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> 
Let's hope it doesn't happen here this evening. Let, let's hope. But there we go. We've just add, add, added something to well, our Well, never actually handed out your address. So. Yeah, but people can work it out probably. Can they? So, yeah, if, they put, if they've been watching 215 episodes, put two and two together on the different clues along the way, they possibly could. So, mm. How know, long before you put in a freedom of information request for your ACO file? I, yeah, I, yeah well, if only I had one. I don't think so. I think I'm okay. But if I – anyway, if I keep promoting socialism the way I am, maybe I'll have oh, yeah. a chance. No, they definitely have a file on you, I'm sure. Right. Uh, speaking of socialism and communism, China has been in the news 12 Very years. much so. So Andrew Hasty, a backbencher, mm. but a guy with a bit of a defence sort of background. Very much so. Mm. He was a um, – SAS soldier. That's right. Mm. And he was a, an officer, I believe, of some mm. uh, some rank. I don't know exactly. Mm. So he came out and basically, as a backbencher, said, uh, "This will be." Well, he wrote an opinion piece, Sydney Morning Herald, and said, "This will be immensely difficult. It is impossible to forsake the US, our closest security and investment partner. It is also impossible to disengage from China, our largest trading partner." He also said that uh, his speeches show that the tough choices ahead will be shaped at least on the uh, Chinese side by ideology, communist ideology, or in his words, by Marxist-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. So he's concerned about uh, China taking over and, and implementing communism around the world and how do we keep them happy as a trading partner, yet keep our... US allies happy as a military ally. Do you see a problem there, 12 men? I see lots of problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, well, let's be, let's be real. Uh, it is a totalitarian state and Marxist-Leninist uh, Mao Zedong thought is, is very much alive and kicking uh, in the person of uh, Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's running it like, uh, pretty much like Lenin did. Back in the old Soviet Union days, mm. you know, it's um, the proletariat of the of the working classes, but it's it's led by the party, of course. The working classes are basically uh, bystanders in the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you see a problem, Scott, with China? Well, <clears throat> I haven't read the hasty article or anything like that. I'm just getting it uh, secondhand from Two Grumpy Hacks, which I listened to this morning, which is. I can't even think what their names are, Dennis Atkins and somebody else. And uh, they both agreed that it wasn't a problem, his article. So I haven't read it or anything like that. Well, all he's saying is there's going to be tough choices. Exactly. Keeping them both happy. Yes. Exactly. To some extent. And that is is exactly exactly the case, that you're going to try and keep them both happy. Now, clearly China's got a hell of a lot uh, thinner skin than the Yanks do (laughs) because – what? Well, because what? the, the well, Chinese, the Chinese the criticised him. He used the N-word. He, he likened their rise to the it's rise Nazis, of Nazism. Nazism. Which is a probably – Which is – It's probably a little bit inflated. But, yeah, you know, yeah. it's um, it's a little bit – you know, if you hark back to that era and that sort of thing, you've got to make sure you're on very solid ground. I don't think he's on exactly solid ground with that. But it's also there are some interesting parallels between that period of history and this current history that's unraveling. Um, <clears throat> the Chinese do have very thin skin, though, Trevor, because they did criticise the Morrison government over Hastie's opinion piece. As they would, 
But do other superpowers criticise our politicians when they make comments detrimental about them? I mean, does the US... I don't know. Uh, have a whinge if we say something that the, you know is not in line with US no. thought. Well, they, they have know. a whinge. I mean, they don't get all huffy puffy about it, do they? In the media, and say you do must they? retract what you said, or you know this will harm our relationship. No, right. the Americans Did always say that he must retract. Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know about retract, but they said it's so it's not happy about that. They're very unhappy about it. They said it is definitely threatening mm. trade relations, whereas the US would basically say, well. You know, we can we can disagree among mm. friends. Uh, we don't have to always agree about everything. We and our relationship is rock solid. They always maintain mm. that. I think if there's a difficult decision down the track, uh, where you know, say the US wants us to stop trading with China over something, or I don't know, these are the sorts of tricky situations. Ultimately, the US is in decline, and China's on the rise. Relative decline. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. of China. Yeah. And just because of inherent problems in the US system. So mm. uh, the US, US power is declining uh, quickly, quicker than a lot of people think. Economically, militarily, well, maybe not so much militarily, but you know what? Give those aircraft carriers and other ships another 20 years and they're starting to rust a bit. Uh, it could come sooner than what we think. Uh, if it was an uncomfortable choice and we weren't sure which way to go, I'd be siding with the Chinese. But seriously. Mm. So do you honestly mm. believe we should sit on the sidelines while you allow Xi Jinping to occupy Taiwan, do you? Well, Taiwan, uh, so if he occupies Taiwan, well, if he launches an attack on Taiwan, yeah. are you saying we should go to war against China? I don't China? know. This is, the, this is a question I'm asking you. Do you think we should sit on the sidelines or not? Would depend on the circumstances, but I yeah. don't. I don't know that we should be directly involved militarily. Mm. But we certainly we, wouldn't we would just certainly sit back and saying, say, "Oh, you guys sorted well, it out among well, yourselves." Well, that'd be one where we'd be saying, "We disagree with you, and we're on the U.S. side on that one." Surely, yeah, surely. I mean, a, a military invasion of yep. of Taiwan would be a very big deal. Yep. Um, it would be much worse than what's going on in Hong Kong now. Mm. And the Taiwanese, of course, are watching uh, with great apprehension of what's going on in Hong Kong. But listen, um, what was I going to say? The Americans were very unhappy when the Australian government approved the sale of the port of Darwin to that Chinese company, and for, for very good reason. I thought it was absolutely crazy that the government, the Australian government, approved that. Why? It's a strategic asset. Yeah, but it's not. It's not a hotel <laughs> in Darwin. It's a strategic asset. Yeah, they own the port. I know they might own the port, but that doesn't give them the right to bring in their naval ships and park them there. They might claim it does. It in the doesn't. Future. They give them that right. That's no. Well, I, I agree with you, but in the future, you can't tell me that you know, ten, twenty years down the track, when you know, if uh, Trevor's prediction. Bears out, and the and the Americans go into serious decline, and the Chinese are establishing bases closer and closer to Australia. And finally, they say, "Oh, well, you know, we'd we'd like to park some of our naval ships in that uh, that port of Darwin now. Um, and if you object, well, we might just park them there anyway. What are you going to do about it? You know? And then we'll sink them. Well, that would be a declaration of war. Absolutely. Against China. Well, China's already invaded our territory by moving their ships in without permission, so mm. we'd sink them in our territory. Okay. Yeah. 
you know, in terms so, of little skirmishes between China and the US over trade, for example, where the US is complaining about Chinese devaluing their currency or, all China, or things like that. All China has done is stopped propping up the yuan. Yep. That's all they've done. Mm. So, you know, if Trump wants to label them currency manipulators, he should be labelling them currency manipulators before the mm. currency collapsed. Yeah. Anyway, I, I apologise to cut you off. Sorry. I think that's small change in the grand scheme of things, frankly. Um, okay, I'm going to edit this bit out because it stopped streaming for some reason, so I'm just going to restart it and see if that makes it any better. Okay. And we were talking about China and, yeah, if there's, I don't know, if there's skirmishes between the two, 50-50 calls, I reckon we should fall on the side of China because ultimately they're going to be the winners in this world. 50 oh. years, 100 years down the track. Oh they're, they're going to be the winners. So you're so, willing to throw everything in with them just because they're going not to be everything, the economic but as I said, if there's, force of If, if the there's era. situations where we're not sure, it's a bit 50-50, then to me it would be who's going to win this at the end of the day. And they're going to win at the end so of the day. So you'd rather live on your knees than die on your feet, as they say. We'll see what happens. To the new you know, Obviously, if we're talking an invasion or something and it's clear cut and mm. we shouldn't be supporting them, don't support them. But if it's a 50-50 where there's a little bit of sort of give and take on both sides, you mm. know, um, a bit of innocence and guilt and a bit of uh, things happening both ways, I reckon... Mm. At the end of the day, the US is uh, kaput as an empire. They're, they're heading sharply down the toilet and they're halfway around the airspent. They just don't realise it yet. So, mm. Gee, yeah. that's very pessimistic. Yeah, that's my view. So mm. I'm, I'm going to do one on economics soon and how uh, the state of the US, and mm. in particular a lot of it relies on the US dollar as a default currency, mm. and that's really propping up. Um, you know, it used to be gold. Mm. Now it's the US dollar. You used to have to find physical gold mm. and put it in Fort Knox. When it's the US dollar, you just keep printing it. And you don't even print it. You just walk up to a computer and you just type it in mm. and give it to the Federal Reserve and say, here, hand that out. Mm. So once you take away the US dollar as the default currency, which is going to happen more and more, then it they... It's like a, a house of cards. Yeah, I think it could very quickly mm. and when you've got all of the US companies have basically vacated the mainland and are operating overseas um, you know Trump talks about uh, wanting to devalue the US dollar to make exports easier but they actually don't pre manufacture stuff anymore in the US the, the manufacturing mm. base has been eroded a lot in the last 20 or 30 years so uh, they're just providing services for themselves and yeah they're in trouble, so they'll, they'll yeah. collapse quickly. We don't know about collapse. Them. They're certainly in trouble. But, you know, you, you shouldn't write them off too too quickly, Trevor. They'll find ways to adapt, I would think. Mm. We'll see. So anyway. You're talking about the world's largest economy, though. I don't mm. think it's going to collapse overnight. Uh, not overnight, but it could be quicker than what we think. Yeah. People probably said similar this things about... Great, uh, the Great Britain in the early 20th century, you know. Yeah. That it would always be, you know, a supreme power and look at it now. It's a shell of what it was. Yes. You know, so we don't know. Although the continental United States is a, is a, you know, has much more massive natural resources and, of course, just the sheer size of the landmass uh, that 
the United, you know, that Great Britain didn't have. So mm. there's that in their favour. So you brought up an article where China was described as fascist. Mm, indeed. Mm. You're going to read the brief description? Uh, yeah, I, I can. Oh, I thought you I got might, it in front of you? Yeah, but I thought I might. From episode 184, we discussed fascism and fascism and Nazism. Mm. So fascism is a form of radical authoritarian ultranationalism characterised by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition and strong regimentation of society and of the economy. Mm. Nazism. And it, and it uh, employed capitalism mm. to assist it. And this, yes. that's exactly what happened in Italy under Mussolini and mm. the fascists. Mm. Uh, Nazism is a form of fascism um, and showed that ideologies, that ideologies disdain for liberal democracy and the parliamentary system, but also incorporated fervent anti-Semitism, um, uh, sort of a scientific racism and a eugenics was sort of part of Nazism, which mm. not part of the uh, fascism that we might be seeing in China. So... Mm. Did you want to read that bit from that article? Or how he yeah, well, it, China? yeah, it says China is an ethno-nationalist, corporatist, authoritarian state. The government harasses, imprisons or murders those who demand the right to vote. It engages in cultural genocide and seeks to make the Chinese dictatorship ideologically inseparable from the self-image of the Chinese people. It protects its domestic economy from foreign competition, subsidises all its important industries, mandates that government officials sit on the boards of all large companies and does not allow independent labour unions, despite the use of the word communist in both the name of the state and the name of its ruling elite, China is fascist. The label of communism is now merely a historical anomaly, relevant only to the extent that totalitarianism remains an underlying principle, the source code of a regime that has likely killed more people than any other in history. Yeah, well. I think it's in a nutshell pretty much sums up uh, modern-day China. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Fascism is supposed to have this ultra-nationalism. They are yeah, very nationalistic. Yeah. Absolutely. More so than most countries? Oh, God, yes. The Han Chinese Absolutely. are very nationalistic. Yeah. yeah, if you go to China and turn on a television, mm-hmm. anywhere, you know, like any day of the week, any, any time of day, there's mm-hmm. always ultra-nationalistic war, war movies going on. And it's That's always crazy. with Japan as the enemy mm-hmm. or possibly America in some cases, you know. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the Korean War is a very popular subject matter for their movies. Mm-hmm. It's very nationalistic, mm. ultra-nationalistic. Okay. I'm prepared to concede that's a form of fascism going on over there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't warn you guys about this one, but did you know that there's a lot of uh, refugees fleeing Europe? Yeah, I did read that a couple of weeks ago. From despotic yeah. European countries. What kind of refugees? Well, these are people fleeing, claiming that they're fleeing European countries seeking political asylum, refugee status in yeah. other countries. I've heard that there are, there's been an outflow of Jewish people from Western Europe towards mm. possibly towards USA, Canada, Australia, but also to Israel. Mm. Places like Greece have had 107 people claim asylum in other countries. <laughs> Greek nationals claim asylum. Yes. Really? That's United Kingdom's had 82. Oh, really? Germany, 71. Lithuania, 70. Italy, 69. France has had 61 people. 
claiming they need French s- nationals claiming yes. political yes. asylum in other countries. Yes, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yes. So uh, I've got a, a list of them there in the show notes, dear listener. And um, there was a case of a Norwegian woman who fled her country, so a, a refugee from Norway, yeah. no less. One of the most affluent liberal mm. democracies in, in the in, world. Indeed, because she feared that the state would take away her baby. Uh, so she claimed that she was being harassed by the Norwegian Child Protection Agency and uh, they claimed that she was leading a chaotic life, you know, not a good mother, not mm. caring for the child. So she sought political asylum and she got it in Poland and Poland was keen to offer it to her. Seriously? Yes, because apparently there's a lot of Polish people living in Norway who have had problems with the same department. Ah. And so this was their way of saying, yes, of course you can have asylum here. Yeah. We, we know how bad it is over there. Cause That's our, right, Because yeah. the Poles who have left here to go there are having all sorts of problems with your family department so yeah. so that's the sort of where it gets to so mm-hmm. yeah even a place like norway has had nine people yeah, it's a bit of it i mean you, we'd take that as a bit of a joke wouldn't mm. we yeah seriously you would a public servant was sacked in australia for anonymous tweets mm-hmm. so she was working as a sort of an in-house lawyer it seemed uh in the department of immigration and border protection mm. And they discovered that she was behind uh, a number of anonymous, uh, an anonymous Twitter account, which was highly critical of the government. Mm. Of their border protection policies. Yes. Quite scathing in many of the comments about Mm. our border protection policies. Was she privy to sensitive information, though? Do you know? Not especially. I don't think she divulged any any, any sort of top secret stuff, but super critical. She was sacked. What do you reckon? Should, should a public servant be sacked for anonymous tweets? No, I don't think so. Right. I think public servants are still citizens and they still should have the right to express a political opinion and an, an opinion about the government they work for. If they do it anonymous, un, anonymously, why shouldn't they be able to do it? Well, you know, traditionally public servants are meant to have this aura of impartiality about mm. them where yeah. they give full and frank and fearless advice to the department and the minister mm-hmm. and the minister can count on them acting out instructions and orders without bias like that the public service of the day uh obeys the commands of the minister yeah in their official capacity and certainly yes with their, perhaps in their own name, if they were interviewed by a news reporter, Mm. perhaps they shouldn't say anything damaging to the government, I suppose. But anonymously, really? You don't think she should have uh, had that right? Do you know how many tweets she sent? Oh, quite a lot, I believe. Scott, what side do you fall on on this one before we get too much further on it, Scott? Um, How do you feel about it? I'm not entirely certain. Mm. I... I understand because she was a lawyer for communications department or something like that, wasn't she? Yes. Actually, in the communication department of the, you know, I mean, <clears throat> one would have thought in that sort of thing that you've probably got a public-facing sort of persona that you've got to put on and that sort of thing. However, I do sort of understand where Paul's coming from too. I don't know. It's, uh, I don't think it's a really easy answer, this one, but I can understand why she was dismissed. 
nobody is without bias. I mean, we, we all work for somebody and we all have our own pol political views and our own bias on everything. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if public servants are without bias mm -hmm. anyway, you know. Yeah. It's just they're not supposed to publicly criticise their employer, who's mm -hmm. the government. Mm -hmm. Now, she didn't publicly criticise her employer as herself. She no. did it anonymously. Mm. So what's but, wrong with but, that? Uh, well, it, it came out who she was and she had been advised and was fully aware of a policy that said uh, even your anonymous tweets you need to treat as if mm. somebody will know who you well, are. that's a, an onerous regulation, mm. isn't it? Mm. You don't think so? Well, she sent 9,000 tweets. Is the number important? <laughs> Put it this way. She sent a bunch of tweets um, highly critical of our immigration and detention policy. Mm -hmm. If she was involved in any discretionary procedure about whether somebody would be treated in a certain way, mm -hmm. you'd have to take the view that she'd probably be biased in favour of refugees and asylum seekers uh, and against the government in any possible way she could find. If, if after reading her 9,000 tweets and if a matter was put before her where there was some discretion involved, you'd have to think it doesn't seem likely that she would be unbiased in her approach but to the decision But nobody is unbiased really, are they? But you'd like to think that people appear to be at least. So and, and appearances it, are more important than substance then? <laughs> I mean, they're pretty full on. It, it's it's pretty clear that she had a very inherent view about the world. So she has an and extreme bias. You're saying yes, mm. and she's in a. And if you're in a position where your bias might affect mm. the work you do or decisions you make, yeah. uh, you know, what if it was the other way and she was very anti-immigration yeah. and you were an immigrant seeking. Uh, you know, seeking a fair hearing, a fair, fair judgment, yeah. and there's that person there in charge of your file. You would go, hang on a minute, that, that person is not going to be able to apply fairly the the you know any discretion that's open to them. I see your point. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if she would have been fired if she'd come out as a, a rabid, you know, anti-immigration mm. uh, uh, activist. You know, mm. who you know vehemently supported. Peter Dutton and all his policies, would mm. she have still been fired from that position? Mm. Um, Possibly not. No. I mean, I take your point that mm. you'd, you'd want somebody in a responsible position making, ju you know, judgments mm. to, ha to be able to fairly weigh up, you know, both sides of an argument. And perhaps she was not capable of that, I think mm. is the point you're making. So the government case was, first, it only applies to persons who choose to be employed in the executive branch of the Commonwealth Government. Secondly, the restriction is limited to political communications which damage the reputation of the Australian Public Service as an apolitical service mm. or otherwise damage the integrity or good reputation of the service mm. or violate the APS values in some other way. So... Yeah. Um, so you uh, think she should restrict her political um, opinion-making to the ballot box is what you're saying? Yeah, or, you know, 
sometimes some jobs require certain conduct. Sometimes you make yourself ineligible for a job. Certain jobs have certain requirements. Mm. It's, what do you think, Scott? Is, is what I think. I don't know. Mm. It's, um, it's not an easy decision to come to. Mm. Okay. So I've got a little uh, item on the agenda. I've given it the subheading, The Morrison Theocracy Gathers Pace. Mm. And what we had, dear listener, was on the 5th of August of this year, a historic meeting in Sydney on Monday. Prime Minister Scott Morrison met with 21 leaders of major faith communities in Australia to discuss progress in the government's plans to introduce a religious discrimination bill. The Jewish, Catholic, Anglican, Uniting Church, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Greek Orthodox, Coptic, Assyrian and Melkite communities Mm. were among those represented at the meeting. Melkite, what's that? Uh, it's something Middle Eastern, isn't it? Right. Yep. I'm not no sure idea. exactly. You know what I would have liked to have seen? The collection of hats. Yeah. <laughs> There's a picture. There was a picture of them all. There's a great yeah. picture and you could see a few hats. Yeah. Let's see the hats. Yeah. Where are the hats? Look, you know, is there going to be an historic meeting with the secular world? No, of course not. And this is what really is giving me the irrits with this whole bloody religious privilege thing that they're all banging on about down there in Canberra. Mm. You've got, you know, the Catholics on the Labor side salivating over it all, Mm. you know, with what's her name, Christina Keneally going on about Mm. it. And now you've got 21 of them all gathered in a room and they're talking to Morrison. But, you know... (sighs) They didn't invite anyone from the NSL, did they? No, there'd be no invitations for any of the secular groups. The NSL people are not superstitious, though, as far as I'm aware. Well, I know they're not superstitious. It was restricted to people who were superstitious. I understand that. Yeah. I mean, uh, which guy fairy did they pray to before they started the meeting? There's just no shame in it. No shame at all. No embarrassment, which is what amazes me. This is the 21st century, people. No no pretense. Not even just a sham meeting of a five-minute one with (laughs) with the non-religious groups. So, anyway. What would you expect? Peter Wertheim, who represented the uh, Jewish community, said... There cannot be many other countries in the world in which the head of government can have a constructive conversation over one and a half hours with such a diverse range of faith community leaders on as sensitive a topic as religious freedom and discrimination. He goes on to say they all outlined that they th- what they thought was important and he said there was a large measure of agreement in the room about many of the principles that the government is grappling with in seeking a fair and workable balance between religious freedom and competing rights and freedoms. Well, gee, a large measure of agreement. This is the beauty of these guys. They can agree when it comes to uh, taking privilege. Yeah. They'll all agree to take as much as they can get. Well, that of course wasn't hard they will. To get. Yeah. yeah. And that's the whole point. You know, <laughs> we've already had one protest down in Sydney against this nonsense. Have we? Mm. Mm. You know, that was a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. I'm not aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's going to be another one. Well, shall we jump ahead to where that is? Um, uh, Brisbane. Yes. This Saturday afternoon at 1pm. Mm. Location? At Queen's Park in the city, mm. uh, diagonally opposite from the uh, Meyer Centre. Queen's Gardens, I think. Queen's Te- Gardens. Oh, okay, next yeah. to the old uh, Treasury, Treasury. Casino. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. In there, that little park. So, 
Yeah. Um, I will be there at 1 p.m. if anyone's interested. Yeah. And I would encourage all of the listeners in the Brisbane area to get down there and protest because what we have seen of this religious freedom bill so far, it's going to be a religious privilege bill. Mm. And it is set up to rip all the rights and protections away from us and they're going to lather themselves up in it. Mm. Mm. And it's not going to be pleasant. What worries me is that they'll institute some sort of like um, Section 18C type of deal where criticism of religion or criticism of religious people will become a criminal offence. Absolutely. That's what worries me. We could end it with a de facto blasphemy law. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you publicly like, I like to publicly, you know, call out Scotty Morrison's Sky Fairy nonsense, I could be potentially prosecutable, do you think? Mm, potentially. Mm. Mm. Okay. I'll go to the barricades for that one. <laughs> I, might, I might be a, a martyr for, you know, uh, freedom of speech against uh, Sky Fairies. Mm. Look, uh there's, there's going to be a protest also in Perth on uh, at Forest Place on Saturday the 24th of August and one in Canberra on Saturday the 31st of August and another one in Melbourne Saturday the 31st. So anyway, in the show notes um, under the heading if you are worried, attend a rally, you'll see a link to it. And mm. um, Who should they look for though? What sort of T-shirt? Should they be looking out for? Yeah. Well, the Melbourne Rally is going to have a working bee to create banners and placards. Seriously? Mm. So you, it's a three-hour meeting at the, at the Victorian Trades Hall where you can you can work on your banner and your placard and whatever you might want to wear, talk man. I'd like to see a, a distinctive hat for secularists. Right. What kind of hat could we come up with? You the know? beanie you're wearing now? <laughs> don't know about that. So that's that uh, in terms of protesting. Um, I didn't watch Q&A, but AC Grayling is in town. Mm. Did you see it at all? No, I fell asleep as I right. was telling you just before. Right. So I don't know much about AC Grayling. Well, he's a philosopher. He's a prof mm. professional philosopher. Mm. I mean, that's been his career. Mm. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's obviously an atheist as well. And... Uh, He's written a number of books. I think I even didn't. He, he wrote that one, which was a sort of a, an atheist Bible type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a few years ago. Do you, are you aware of that? Uh, it was like a Bible, he's, he's, but he's, for people who don't believe in God. Okay, he's coming out with some sort of history of philosophy book. I think is what he's plugging at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I've got a link to an old article from two thousand and six from the Guardian about playing. him. Yes, and. Uh, uh, he says in it, in terms of respect, we might enhance the respect others accord us if we are kind, considerate, peace-loving, courageous, truthful, loyal, etc. through you, our actions. Wouldn't you think? Um, That's why the respect one should have for one's fellow humans has to be founded on their humanity, irrespective of the things they have no choice over, for example, ethnicity, age, sexuality, natural gifts, presence or absence of disability. Mm. And conditionally, uh, meaning you don't give respect, you give respect conditionally uh, upon things that they choose, so political affiliation, belief system, lifestyle, 
according to the case that can be made for the choice and the defence that can be offered of the actions that follow from it. Mm. So, um, so no unconditional respect for those life choices. Mm. He says, it is because age, ethnicity and disability are not matters of choice that people should be protected from discrimination premised upon them. By contrast, nothing that people choose in the way of politics, lifestyle or religion should be immune from criticism and when, as so often it does, it merits a ridicule. So that's what we've been saying here. And this, you don't hear this said enough. Like no. people are treating religion in the same category as uh, sexuality, race, race disability and gender yeah. and things. And, and it's, it's just an ideology. It's nothing absolute, special. Absolutely. Nobody says it. So, so yeah, AC Grayling came out with that. So, yeah. Um, so shall we accord him some more respect? I think because of his views, at least, we can say mm. uh, good on him. Yeah. Um, uh, Joseph Hildebrand, mm-hmm. I think, is on the panel sometimes. Mm. He, he works on TV, yeah. on Channel 10, I think. I think so. Or Channel 7, I forget which yeah. one. Yeah. He wrote a piece about hate speech and... Mm. You know how Christina Keneally came out and said that that guy from the UK should not be allowed? Yes, the visiting speaker to the CPAC conference. Yeah. So uh, Joe Hildebrand said, well, that's just wrong. I mean, Mm. we need to hear these views and that way we can disagree with them. And uh, he says, you know, offensive or hate speech should not be banned with the obvious and explicit exception of any incitement to violence. Totally with exactly. Joe on that. Absolutely. Perfectly in line with what we've been saying Absolutely. here, Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I've, yeah. I've read a few of his column, his mm. articles mm. over the last few years that I, mm. I pretty much agreed with him, mm. I have to say. Mm. So, um, so he wrote a piece that said basically that mm. and uh, he said we need to, you know, hear from these alternative views so we can work out who the rat bags are. And basically, in response to the article, he got a massive response, which he thinks proved who the rat bags are, and they're all from the left because the left <laughs> Unsurprising. came out Milton. in attack Milton. at him. Oh, yeah. Him. Well, they, they they always have, I think, seen yes. him as uh, alt-right or right. you know, something along those lines. Yeah. He's a mixed character. We'll yeah. get to that. He is. Um, dear listener, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, there's a general language warning. Like we occasionally drop the F word or the C word if it's appropriate. In this case, we have to. So <laughs> if you've got kiddies listening, uh, time to turn that off yeah, and or, shuffle them away. Or put those earplugs in there. Yes. Indeed, yeah. So, so this is some of the correspondence that he got from people mm-hmm. in response to what's just a sensible thing to say. A very sensible argument. Yeah. He's just saying let's hear every... Yeah. argument, every every ideology, and, and judge it on its merits. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So one of his respondents opened by, um, one respondent opened by calling me a cunt and then in the very same tweet bemoaned the lack of civil discourse in public debate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Another began their first tweet with the words, get fucked, Joe, and then in their second complained that I wouldn't have a polite discussion with them. Mm. Yeah. He said, of course, there was more uh, vicious abuse and um, he said, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's a sad reflection of uh, where we are. Um, Mm. But he then goes on a real odd sort of tangent where he really bemoans uh, socialism and drags socialism into this. 
He said, uh, these days, as then, socialism is the domain of the disaffected upper middle class, so-called intellectual. The only difference is that these days such insufferable twats can bang on about it 24 hours a day, creating the impression that it's a growing movement rather than a spreading disease. Has Joe been listening to the podcast? (laughs) Indeed. But in the next paragraph he says, and of course because it is the domain of the overprivileged, the causes du jour have shifted from elevating the poor uh, or the dictatorship of the proletariat, as Lenin so progressively proclaimed, to the niche obsessions of identity politics that have so dominated public debate. That's a confusing joining of ideas here. So he's saying that socialism is the domain of the upper middle class twat, and then he's saying because it is their domain, uh, the cause du jour, the cause of the day has shifted from elevating the poor to identity politics. Well, he's right about that. He's right. um, But, yeah, I don't think that... I I wouldn't associate it necessarily with the upper middle classes. Yeah. It's it's the left, whether they're you know left working class or left middle class or whatever. But the left mm. is very much pushing identity mm. politics. I mm. don't think the identity politics coming from the left working class though. I think the left working class still have a What's fire it? in their belly for the class struggle, for wages and yeah, for and wages and that sort benefits of benefits. That is their real bugbear. Depends on who you talk to. There's not enough of a left. No, there's not enough of a left. I understand mm. that. But, mm. you know, it is – I honestly believe that the left working class are what the left traditionally was mm. and it's very small now but mm. they are still there. Mm. You know, you've got a few of them in the Senate. What's his name? That uh, big fat bloke, Kim Carr. Yeah. You know, he's very much a traditional left wing And thinker. the Scottish bloke. What's his name? Uh, he's in now retired. Oh, is he? Yeah. Mm. Uh, what was his name? Yeah, he's gone. But, um, yeah. I can't think what his name was. He was good value. I didn't always agree with him, but I like no, I, I like the I fire in his belly. And, Absolutely. And he was always ready to stand up and defend, uh, you know, working class, fa- you know, justice for working class people. He mm. was very much a very traditional trade unionist, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. Mm. So he's quoted a few people, though, who are sort of in favour of the working class but can't sort of adopt these identity politics ideas. So... Mm. I'll quote a few of them here. As one former fellow traveller mournfully said, it's becoming mass exodus, but where to go? Not lib, for sure. The politics of group identity and emotions over facts, however, leave a lot of us feeling homeless in a political sense. So Joe Hildebrand's calling them the lost tribes of the left. I can relate to that, Mm. absolutely. I mean, Mm. you know, I've made it known many times, I'm sure, that I... Mm come from traditionally a sort of Labor voting working class family and I think the Labor Party is totally lost to me and mm. I certainly don't identify as a, you know, as a Liberal Party voter. Mm. Um, that's why I joined the Secular Party for mm. goodness sake because, you know, it seemed to me they made a lot more sense in their day. You were looking for a lost tribe and you found one. I found a lost tribe, yeah, and I've, I've stuck with that lost tribe, I'd like to say. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Here's something from the left. Do you guys have you seen the um, things on Facebook uh, by Juice Media about the Aus- 
the Australian government and their anti-government ads. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Some the of them are quite funny. The yes. honest honest government advertising. Yes, mm. yeah. indeed, mm. yes. So I've got a little bit of some to play. So they're doing a podcast now. Oh. So it's playing one of a, a clip from one of their pieces and there's and then an explanation from the guy behind it uh, as he's uh, talking about it. Um, so have a listen to this and see if you think the same as me. And our latest Honest Government ad is a perfect example of that connection between the local and the bigger picture. And that is the story of the Jabarong people and how they're trying to protect the last remaining vestiges of their ancestral lands from a highway development project which is taking place in Western Victoria. Namaste. I'm from the Australian Government here to introduce our newest segment, Numbers Numbers with Susan. Numbers with Susan brings you the latest bullshit from your new Environment Minister, a numerology enthusiast who added an S to her name for good luck. Isn't that bullshit? You might be thinking pseudoscience isn't what we need from the Minister responsible for the fate of our planet's life support systems. But come on, numbers are fun. Like 3,000. That's the number of native trees Susan and the Victorian Government have approved for destruction so we can reroute this stretch of the Western Highway. Sure, scientists say we must plant billions of trees to avoid the collapse of all life on Earth, but Susan read some tea leaves and they said, fuck science. Blowing up what's left of Western Victoria's giant natives will bring good health when everything's dead. Numbers Numbers with Susan. Susan. And 263, that's the number of those trees that are sacred to the Jabberong people, the sovereigns of these lands. This majestic ancestral direction tree is 300 years old. Sadly, Susan said 300 isn't a destiny number. So she doesn't give a shit that it will get the axe to build a road. That's why right now the Jabberong are calling on people to join them in protecting this sacred landscape and ancient trees from our shit fuckery. Zero. That's how many fucks Dan and Jacinta give about signing that treaty with Victoria's Indigenous people. Because nothing says treaty like a chainsaw. That's an excerpt from our Honest Government ad. All of a sudden, the legitimacy of the sacredness of these places is called into question. People say, oh, they're just making it up. That's beside the point. Catholics, Protestants, Jews and Muslims might be making up the sacredness of their own sacred places. That's not the point. The point is, we respect the fact that they regard those places as sacred. So the question is, does the government and Australian society afford the same respect to Aboriginal beliefs and practices? Does anyone see a double standard? Yes, here? very, much, very so. much a double standard. Very there. much yeah. so. So Susan words, Lee with her numerology yeah, is rubbish just, her. It's just batshit stupid for yeah. her irrational, unscientific. But indigenous so called sacred trees mm. are not batshit crazy. It must be afforded respect. Oh, Where like we of course think numerology is completely nuts. Do we? Yeah. Since when? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, based on the days of the week, I figure that, you know, yeah, anyway. But uh, what, you know, we must afford respect to these people, even if you don't believe it yourself. Mm-hmm. But where was the respect for Susan Lee with her numerology? Like, no, none you at know, all. like, what a double standard. <laughs> it really is. To isn't just it? say, you batshit but crazy. This is what pisses me off about the Greens. You know, know, the Greens claim to be a science based, you know, ra- rational, basically rational party. And yet they want to afford respect to anything indigenous. Seriously, they do. Yeah, I, I just—it's a double to standard, that, I was absolutely. Thinking, God, how did you guys produce that and not yeah. see the double standard in that? It just struck me yeah. immediately. Mm. A classic example of what's going on in the left. There we Indeed, go. Mm. it is. It, it's really 
quite distressing when you listen to that, isn't it? Mm. Wouldn't be distressed a bit more. Uh, New South Wales has had a fair bit of news and a it's lot of it's bad. bad. Is mm. it? Why? Yeah. About what? Uh, <laughs> the religious groups are just getting stronger and more active down there. So we've got links to articles here. Uh, basically, conservative Christians um, produced a 900-word document uh, titled New South Wales Reformers Taking Back Our Nation Through Good Government and it lays out how they intend to recruit 5,000 Christian mm. conservatives to control the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party. And um, It's the Billy Tea Party is what it is. It's like right. the Tea Party in America took mm. over the Republican Party. Mm. They're trying to do it here with the Liberal Party. Yeah, so... What they've been doing is they've been organising petitions over things like gender ideology, gay surrogacy, uh, religious freedom, Zoe's law, and then getting the names off these petitions and then saying to the people, well, you need to join a political party and nine times out of ten they're religious and, and you know, they're, they're getting people by that. Um, well, we know religious people are often more motivated mm. to go, in, go out and... and be active in mm. protecting their rights, whereas mm. secular people sort of assume that their rights are already safe, you know what yes. I mean? Yeah. So they're, they're much less inclined to be activists. Yep. So the groups uh, got a spreadsheet with uh, dozens of churches across Sydney that they're planning to target and they specifically said they're not going to work on any minor parties. They're just aiming for the Liberal Party. Yeah, because it's say, one of the... Governing parties, let's so face it. We cannot afford to flee from a major party as this will forever reduce conservative Christians to a, a minor influence in society with very little ability to determine legislation. Mm. So, which is what I've been saying about secular atheist groups, you have to join a major party. So which one? You're suggesting the Labor Party? The only party. one left is the Labor Party. Of course you're not going to like everything they do, but that's the only one. So... It's, it's a clear case of branch stacking that's going on. And New South Wales Liberal President Philip Ruddock said he didn't have a problem with branch development. <laughs> and quote, he says, my view as the party president is if you're worried about being stacked, then outstack. Yes, join up and make your voice heard. Mm, yeah. And there's also been different religious freedom events which have been used to recruit Christian liberal members as well. So, and um, their parliament's gone nuts in New South Wales as well. Um, Mark Latham is behind it, but... Uh, <laughs> that was ridiculous. At least 500 PNC groups across New South Wales will be sent an information pack with advice for parents <coughs> on identifying if their child <coughs> is being indoctrinated by radical gender activists at school. Mm. So a political lobby group binary is going to distribute these packs. <laughs> this was launched by Latham. Various government people were either wanting to be at the launch or tried to be. Mark Latham chairs the Upper House's Education Committee. And, really? Um, yeah. And goes on here to say, in terms of what's in this pack, um, uh, it says parents should ask their schools which toilets trans students use, where trans students sleep on school camps, and whether biological males can participate as females in sporting teams. These are sort of all part of the information packs being sent out to 500 PNC groups by 
nutters in the New South Wales mm. Parliament. They, they, they're going to the, I don't know where they're going to. <laughs> there are a few nutters around. Yeah. There is. They're going to hell in a handbasket, aren't they? That's it. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. But look, you know, they're probably arguably nutters in, in the major parties as well as in the minor parties. Yeah, yeah there's nutters in there's nutters across the entire society. Mm. However, they are a very small major, minority of our society. The problem is when you get them concentrated in the political parties, yeah. that's when the batshit crazy nonsense goes on. Mm. You know, it is like what happened up here. Deb Frecklington gave her side of Parliament a conscience vote in the abortion law reform. Four of them exercised their conscience and they've been been—they've had their pre-selection questioned by the party president. I think that was entrapment. I think that was a deliberate ploy to, to you know, to smoke them out, so to speak. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. And now you've got that whole problem. That, you know, now they know who, who, who they can't rely on to, exactly. to stick to the Christian conservative line. Mm-hmm. They can get rid of them. Exactly. And then, you, you know, you've got voluntary assisted dying that's going to be argued about and probably voted on in the next parliament, mm. provided Frecklington doesn't win the next election. Mm. Do you honestly believe the coalition's going to have a genuine conscience vote on that? No. no. I, I, you know, I have waxed and waned a long time over whether or not we should have secret ballots in our parliament. And okay. I think that in matters of conscience votes that there should be a secret ballot. Mm. Interesting thought. You know, just to I want to know which way my Absolutely, I understand that. Voting. I understand that. But when you've got a situation like this where the LNP's party president is down on people over their pre-selection because they voted one way or the other, I think you'd be better off not knowing which way your parliamentarian voted. Oh, no, you have to know which way they yeah, voted. I, I in, gen- in, general, yeah. in general, yes, you're right, but in a conscience vote, I don't think it's... I don't think it's well, we just idea. have to call out the party and say, you know, this is, this is not a conscience vote and that people are being coerced into voting along the party line. You know? Yeah, I know, but who, 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 who called them out? We do on the podcast. I know we do, but there's not a hell of a lot of people out there that did. And, you know, if Frecklington does win the next election, then we're not going to talk about voluntary assisted dying. It'll be over. But, Scott, you, you have to know which way your your representative yeah. has voted on something. It has to be on the parliamentary yeah. record. And, yeah. and, and, and no representative should want to be in Parliament and not say how they voted. That's right. You know, yeah. you, Because there. they have to be accountable yes. to the people who voted for them. Yeah, yes. I agree. The people who voted for them have to yes. know exactly what yeah. they voted on and yes. how they voted. Yeah. A democracy I, fails if you don't know which, how they voted. Yeah. Well, I yeah. understand that. But, you know, we, we are not alone if we have a secret ballot in our parliament. I believe Japan's got a secret ballot in their parliament. Really? I believe so. I don't know. Oh. I'll check that out. Yeah, mm. I, I don't know. I just remember seeing pictures of them going up and they were going up and they were putting a ballot into a, uh, into, oh, okay. a into a box mm. at the end of it all. I'll have a look at that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, well, it's, it's Let's have a look at it right now. Google it. <laughs> Can't see it quickly coming up, so mm. um, don't know about that one. We'll find out by next week. Too, mm. so. Uh, let's see. We need patrons, and I'm going to call out who the patrons are. But in the meantime, we've got a new patron message. Here we go. Now, a matter of great importance has been brought to my attention. I speak, of course, of the generous contributions made by the patrons of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. These fine men and women 
have sacrificed so much for their countrymen. Never before in the field of human conflict have so many owed so much to so few. To those of you who are not yet patrons, I say this. Give generously of yourself. Give until you can honestly say, I have nothing left to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. <clears throat> Let me see. What is the time? Ah, 10 a.m. Now, where is my whiskey and cigars? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Winston. <laughs> Thank you to the patrons. Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayno, Ayame, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Roman, Matt J, Robert, Rod, Pally, Matic, Man, Dominic, Liam, Dave, Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain, Doomsday, Hayden, Wheat Watcher, Nico, Andy, Murray, Melinda, Adam, Greg, Professor, Dr. Dentist, Will, Glenn, Craig, Matthew, Clinton, Alexander. Also, just coming in, signing up today was, thank you, Paul, and our non-patrons, Dean, Ken, was the beneficiary, Mr. Anderson, Corinne, and Matt Mann, and the beer sponsors. The beer sponsors tonight, we're drinking a 150 Lashes. Thanks very much to Landon Hardbottom for that. Mm. And the beer sponsors we've had since the beginning was Wayne A, Landon Hardbottom, Branwen, Dave, Adam, Landon Hardbottom again, Caitlin, Zach, Campton, Doomsday, and Landon Hardbottom again. Landon, you're a champion. It's he a bit is. of a worry, the beer sponsorship from Landon. For those who, who <laughs> may not have heard it in the past, this was one of our messages from Landon, and you'll understand why we're a little bit nervous. Good work. Cheers, Was Warren, thank you very much. <laughs> Sir, Monsieur Glove has a fondness for the amber fluid, does he? I smell a device upon which to bait my trap and exact my revenge. Careful, Landon. These seals must appear unbroken. Uh, Cheryl, yes, my love? Oh, just putting together a gift for some friends? This weekend? Well, I thought that I'd play polo this weekend. Oh, you don't say. A couple's retreat, intense therapy, Catholic monastery. Well, sounds delightful. Well, I can't wait. Fist, glove, twelfth man, enjoy your amber. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure There's I like the sound of that. Supply. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Landon. We're, we're carefully looking at any bottles supplied. <laughs> Landon Hardbottom. Check the seals. Mm. Right. Um, something that just came up today at the last minute was school funding. So an ABC News investigation revealed for the first time the gaping divide that separates the capital expenditure mm. of Australia's richest and poorest schools. Well, there's been a lot of talk that we've done about uh, regular ongoing payment per child um, payments from all levels of government. Mm. This is the first time that somebody's looked closely at the capital payments for buildings, mm. infrastructure and schools. So here are the key things. Half of the $22 billion 
spent on capital projects in Australian schools between 2013 and 2017 was spent in just 10% of schools. So half of the 22 billion in just 10%. Mm. I'm gonna play devil's advocate at the same time. Well, that's okay if 10% of the schools are teaching half of the students. 10% of the students. Well, if if they're getting half of the capital projects, then uh, because obviously some schools are bigger than others. Mm. So mm. so that, you know, just because it went to 10% of the schools may not be so bad because if they're teaching half the kids, then Realistically, the that's almost an impossibility, Indeed. of course. Next point. These schools teach fewer than 30% of the students and are the country's richest, ranked by average annual income from all sources over the five-year period. So the... Half of the $22 billion went to just 10% of schools and those schools teach fewer than 30% of students. I think much okay. fewer than 30%. No, just a few, few just, just oh, really? fewer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that figure though of the $22 billion includes private contributions and government contributions. Mm. So what proportion was private and what proportion was government. Uh, so uh, these schools, they also reaped 28% of the $8.6 billion in capital spending funded by the government. So half of capital, government and private, went to 10% of the schools, the rich 10%, who only teach 30% of students, and they received 28% of government capital spending. Are you sure you got your numbers? You're yeah, saying I'm reading directly from the article. Ten percent of the schools teach teach thirty percent of the students in yeah, Australia. Yes, I thought it was like thirty percent in all private schools. Just quoting it from the straight from the article here. Okay. So, so let me oh let me go it again. Um, half of the twenty two billion spent on capital projects was spent in just ten percent of schools. These schools teach fewer than 30% of students and are the country's richest. Mm. They also reaped 28% of capital spending by the government. So the top 10% of schools teach nearly 30% of students and received nearly 30% of government capital expenditure. So on the face of it, though, they could say that's not so bad. We're teaching 30% of the kids and we got 30% of the capital. Mm. So what are you complaining about? The problem is that um, it's, um, what do they call it? The What they spend on a day-to-day basis, what do they call that? Not capital expenditure. Re- uh, recurrent. recurrent, recurrent expenditure. Expenditure. Yes. Yeah. The, the problem being that it's not at all together clear that the, these private schools can't sort of rely on getting this uh, government recurrent expenditure and then diverting a lot of the other money that they would have otherwise spent on recurrent expenditure and putting it into, you know, new auditoriums and sporting fields and whatever. That's true. But let's assume they're not and they're teaching, let's just use round figures, they're teaching a third of the kids and they're getting a third of the capital expenditure of the government. Is that such a bad thing? Scott? When you look at it on raw numbers, no, it's not such a bad thing. However, 
it really grates on me that you've got private schools getting one third of the capital expenditure. Well, well, the point is there are lots of other government programs that are run where people can't say, I pay my taxes and therefore I want my share of the government funding to go to my private enterprise Mm. version of it. So, Mm. you know... I don't use the public transport system. Yeah, therefore, so therefore, I, I want have your my car tax money yeah. handed to me. For and my, I don't want to drive my, a Hyundai. I want to drive a Mercedes-Benz but, or but, a BMW. But, but, but whatever. My share of the tax that goes to public transport, because I don't use public transport, you should give it to me mm. and I can use that on my private vehicle expense. Yeah. I don't use the public library. Yeah. Therefore, the... Uh, my share of tax that goes towards public libraries, you should give that to me and I can buy my books from Amazon because I'm not using the public mm. purse. Yeah. Or um, what was the other one I was going to mention here along those lines was um, swimming pools. You know, I don't use the public, public swimming, swimming pool. pool. So I should so be al- you, allowed to spend it on my money, own private that, swimming right. pool. My share of the tax you should be giving me so that I can spend it on my private swimming pool. Yeah. So that's the first thing is when we run a government program, we don't say to people, oh, if you just opt out, we'll give you your share Mm. of the tax component that most people are paying towards that. Mm. The second part is, uh, you know, the private schools have got kids in high socioeconomic groupings and they are cheaper and easier to teach. So in the lower socioeconomic areas is where you've got the disadvantaged, the, the disabled, the kids with problems that are uh, much more expensive and harder to teach. So require more resources intensively applied. Exactly. So you need a bigger share of Mm. the resources if you were to, even if you assumed I was wrong on that first argument, Mm. but if you're doing a fair allocation of how much does it cost to actually teach kids, you'd have to allocate more to the poorer schools because it costs considerably more to to teach uh, yeah. lower socioeconomic yeah. groups than, than the higher ones. Absolutely. So, so, um, so there we go. That's the sort of So how many of those elite schools have special education units, you know? Yeah, uh, not Is many on, and, and how many are attending, yeah. So, not many at all. Mm, so, so that's things to keep in mind when you come across that mm. argument. When people say, I pay my taxes, therefore... I should be able to just take that. That should go to my private school and then I can tack on my extra money on top and have my elitist system if I want to. And just overall for our society, having our kids broken up into these elite groups and and sort of siloed off into their class distinctions is not good. It's so bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you know, I I think all the kids should – go together in the local public school and, mm. you know, meet each other, learn to know each other on a personal yeah. level and know each other as human beings. Indeed. And because these schools are often divided on religious denomination Even grounds, worse. then we've got little Muslim boys yes. who never meet little Jewish boys, That's who never right. meet little Christian boys and so they're much more why they hate each other when they grow exactly. up. Exactly. They're much more likely to, 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 to believe the propaganda they hear mm. at the local, you know, synagogue, mosque or church mm. about the other, so-called other. Mm. Yeah. It's yep. tribalism. Mm. Yep. Have you guys been on a cruise ship? Never. No, never. Right. 
I don't have any desire to go on a cruise either. Mm. Here's a story for you. A holidaymaker dressed as a clown. <laughs> I did read this and I prompt, thought, Jesus prompt, Christ. Prompted a mass brawl on a cruise ship in which passengers used furniture and plates as weapons. He, was, he or she was dressed as a clown. Was that the provocation to start the fight? We'll get to it. The late night fight in the buffet area on board <laughs> P&O's Britannia left a member of staff injured as they tried to intervene while onlookers fled in fear. <laughs> the brawl took place in the early hours of Friday morning during the return leg of a week-long cruise to Norway's fjords, reportedly followed an alcohol fueled afternoon of patriotic partying on deck. One witness, part of a group involved in the trouble, explained to staff that things kicked off when another passenger appeared dressed as a clown. This upset one of their party because they'd specifically booked a cruise with no fancy dress <laughs> and it led to a violent confrontation. Yeah, you just have to sit him down and say, look, just get over yourself, wouldn't you? I just love the way somebody books a cruise and specifically no orders the one with no fancy dress. That's yeah. funny. Oh, have you been on a cruise, Trevor? Yes, I have. And yes. what did you specify couldn't be on it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, my daughter. No was, church services. My daughter was a dancer on cruise ships, uh-huh. so we joined her at different mm. times, and so we had a much different experience to most people um, because we obviously hang around her friends and uh, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So, um, did you get cheap so, drinks? So, uh, so yes, we did buy. Daughter, yes. <laughs> I highly recommend also a river cruise. Like we did Amsterdam to Budapest, and uh, that's a much different experience to a cruise liner. People and in my family have done those trips. Mm, in fact, several times. Yeah, they loved it. Really good. So it's you much, liked it too. Mm, so mm. there's only two or three hundred people on board, mm. and but they're quite expensive, aren't very they? Very expensive, mm. but uh, really, really good. Really? So yeah, I mean, somewhere like Cologne, you would be. You'd pull up in at the dock, literally a stone's throw from the cathedral, and wander around all day, see all the sites that have you know tour tour guides there for you, and then you hop back on the boat uh, through the night. It travels to the next spot. You wake up, and a lot of these European cities are designed for travel by boat on the rivers. Mm. So. The sort of the grand entrance to them, yeah. uh, entering Budapest at night with all of the indeed uh, all of the palaces on the banks of the river. Yeah, I've seen photographs mm. of the, uh, I think it's the government buildings, isn't it? The parliament building is quite a grand-looking building. Mm. So if you were to drive into Budapest on the freeway uh, from the airport or something, you would have a completely different experience to to sort of coming Mm. in by boat at night time on the river and, yeah. Indeed. Yeah, so recommend that, dear listener, if you can get the chance. Uh, Look, we're just going to go through a a batch of different topics here and I'm going to just try and cobble together a half-decent podcast because this has not been been our best effort. Um, I've got an old one here of a digital tax. So uh, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission produced a 600-page report and made 23 recommendations about a digital tax. So what we're talking about here, dear listener, is the likes of Google and Facebook and others who are making a lot of money in this country. And paying bugger all tax. Mm. So the Morrison government is apparently working on a digital tax through the G20 group. 
G20, top 20 yeah. economies mm. of the world. But the United States will block that, won't they? Well, uh, that's what they're going to try and do, obviously, because they're US companies mm. that they've got. And, and they kicked up a stink when mm. the French tried to tax Google, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, but the French went on their own. Yes. Whereas this is going to have the backing of 20 large economies. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, but, you know, those companies will lobby the US government and... Uh, yeah, but it's got to come down to that'll end up being, you know, a bitch fight between the US Treasury and the uh, the treasuries of those countries that, that, that are imposing the digital tax. Mm. Asked whether Labor supported a special tax on tech companies. So the Labor opposition, the Working Man's Party. Yeah, I didn't the, make a lot of the, sense. The proletariat party here mm. asked whether Labor supported a special tax on tech companies. Opposition communication spokeswoman Michelle Rowland said the issue was complex. Uh, I think that it's an open question about whether they are paying their fair share. I an don't, open question. I don't have any evidence in front of me. Really? Gosh. She obviously hasn't been listening to the podcast, the, No, she's the opposition spokesperson this on is, that topic. This is our Labor Party. Well, somebody made the point that um, people rotate through these, um, you know, portfolio positions, even opposition portfolio positions with such rapidity in recent years that they can't possibly be across their individual briefs. Mm. They're just not in the job long enough to really get a handle on it. Mm. There was one Labor guy, union leader turned Senator Tony Sheldon, is demanding tech giants face a controversial new tax and he blasted Google and Facebook for failing our economy and our democracy. Mm. So uh, he has suggested, uh, he backed um, the French tax, which um, they're imposing a 3% levy on annual revenue of Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple, Scott. So 3% of revenue. Mm. Good idea. It is. Yeah, that's what I've been calling for for a long time, a mm. flat tax mm. on corporate revenue. It's quite yes. modest, doesn't it, 3%? Yeah, but it's on the mm. revenue, not mm. the net profit. Oh, okay, yeah. So whatever, whatever bullshit mm. they do with their transfer pricing, it doesn't matter because it's going on the revenue Good. line. Still pretty easy off, it's, you know, yeah. it could be more, I think. But anyway. Uh, 3% of the revenue, that's that's no problem at all because it, if you've got a billion dollars, that becomes $30 million, doesn't it? Or $300 million. No, $30 million. Sounds quite modest. Mm, but on a billion dollars. Mm. But that's the revenue. But all the expenses and all that sort of mm. stuff that they've got to make, they've got to pay out and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, in Australia, Google reported a revenue of $1 billion. In mm. 2017, uh, it paid 37 million in tax on a total profit of 125 million. So, so revenue of a billion, it claimed profit of 125 million, and it then paid tax of 37 million. So, 37 out of a thousand million. Is three point seven percent. You're right. That's three point seven. Yeah, percent. Three point seven percent. Yeah. So the French tax is probably quite reasonable. So, so this. So essentially, Google paid the equivalent of the French tax mm. in Australia. Do they? Yeah. Well, that's what they did in 2017. Now, 37 of, million was the tax bill on 125 million dollars worth mm. of um, 
yeah, it's 29.6%, which is about what the um, corporate tax rate is in Australia. Yeah. So, so yeah, revenue of a billion, profit of 125 million. It looks like they've paid roughly 30% of hmm. 125 million. Do you so, believe their figures, though? Uh, this is reported, so I don't have any problem with those figures. Yeah, so. it depends on what they've done with their transfer pricing. They, yeah. might, have, they might have sucked a whole lot of money through Singapore. Mm. But whether their profit of $125 million out of revenue of $1 billion, It I mean, seems a bit get, light. Yeah. yeah. It sounds low it's, to me, yeah. but I'm not an economist. Yeah. But that's interesting that, that the Australian tax that they paid is pretty much equal to the, French, the French tax. Taxes, yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is why I wasn't surprised that the – that the tax rate was so low on because it's on revenue, not on the not on the profits. Yeah, Trump wasn't happy. No, he, of course not. He said France can expect a substantial reciprocal action if anyone taxes them. It should be their home country, the USA. Mr. Why? Trump tweeted. If they're making profit yeah. in France, of course they should pay tax in France. He also said, "I've always said American wine is better than French wine." Oh, he's such a moron. Isn't he, he is a moron. Yeah. 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 There we go. So he shoots his mouth off at every opportunity. That guy, and he makes himself just look foolish and dumb. Mm. There we go. So that's that. Um, free time for peasants. We get this impression that life just... must have been tough as a peasant. Pretty much, mm. wouldn't you think? Life for the medieval peasant was certainly no picnic. His life was shadowed by fear of. Famine, disease, and bursts of warfare. His diet and personal hygiene left much to be desired. <laughs> but his, despite his reputation as a miserable wretch, you might envy him one thing: his vacations. <laughs> Ploughing and harvesting were backbreaking toil, but the peasant enjoyed anywhere from eight weeks to half the year off. Um, weddings, wakes, and births might mean a week off. Quaffing ale to celebrate, and when wandering jugglers or sporting events came to town, the peasant expected time off for entertainment. There were labour-free Sundays, and when the ploughing and harvesting seasons were over, the peasant got time to rest too. In fact, econo- economist Juliet Shaw found that during periods of particularly high wages, such as the 14th century England, peasants might put in no more than 150 days a year. You're looking with disbelief. Yeah, Trust I me. find it hard hard to believe that their life wasn't really pretty tough most of the time. Mm. It would have been tough, but I just think that the whole article is just saying that they had plenty of time off. Yeah, plenty of what time. What did they do during that time off? Did they just mm, they, lie, lie around on the sofa watching TV? Well, they didn't have TV, so cool. they would have sat around and that sort of stuff. They would have darned their socks, I suppose. Oh. Well, yeah, you can't imagine the women would have had any days off. Well, they would have been... You know, taking care of the kids and, you know, cooking and cleaning and making clothes and probably doing other uh, crafty sort of things. Well, even in hunter-gatherer societies, you know, when you've killed a big beast, if you're in a reasonably plentiful environment, the lifestyle, if you got through childhood... uh, And you weren't a woman. Yes. Maybe not so bad in in many cases. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not convinced. So you you wouldn't want to go back in time. Uh, No. I think no, I, rather I, stay in the twenty first century. Absolutely, I would too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that gets me about people who romanticise indigenous cultures, mm. as if they were some sort of paradise. You know, that the, the the indigenous people were living in some sort of paradisical garden of Eden. You know, where they, everything was happy. You know, and they were treating each other. You know, with great dignity and respect all the time. And you know, being nice to each other, you know, it was basically 
you know, hippies in the pre-modern era. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't like that. We, we know from what we've read about traditional societies. And I've, mm. you know, I've read a bit about traditional societies from other parts of the world as well. And life was pretty tough. And, you know, their traditional culture towards each other was not always very nice. Mm. It was very brutal towards one another. Mm. Particularly against the women, as mm. we know, mm. women and girls. There, there, there was a there was sort of a war making season though in sort of medieval times, wasn't there? And oh, even wasn't in it? ancient times, it was when fields had been ploughed and and grain gathered. Time to th- make war. Then it was time to make war because, um, really? yeah, and so there were. Yeah, because you had to feed the army. But some wars, so, so some were, wars were, went for years, yes. years and years. Yeah, but there were times I think where it was, you know, war making seasoned, and really? yeah, if you weren't making war, presumably you had a bit of time off. So mm. anyway, that's according to an economist who studied the time and said, in good places at the right time, you might have got 150 days a year off. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be all right. Gee, wonder if they had holiday loading. No, I doubt it. Well, I think we've run out of gas. This this has been an awkward episode. It's been a little bit disjointed. Yeah, it It has has been. Got distracted by that. Never mind. mm. Now, next week, I am away in Sydney. Mm. So, we might try and do it by Skype. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Have you got an internet connection? (sighs) You're not going to make it. Well, I just don't think my internet mm. connection is good enough, quite frankly. Mm. It's just not good enough. Mm. Yep. So I might have to enjoy, you know, several of my 150 days off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what we'll do is try and do it by Skype then, Scott. No worries. So, mm. Right, dear listener. That was a tough one. Mm. Too many thanks, distractions. Thanks for your patience. Mm. Mm. We'll, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> thanks very much. Cheers. Bye, Bye now. everyone. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't 
listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.